Alright, welcome to anybody who's visiting today. We're thankful you're here worshiping with us. I'm not Pastor Andy. Uh, I'm Jake. I'm just a, a member here at uh, Grace. My wife and I, Jessica, we, we work with the, the youth here at Grace, but we're thankful you're here. Uh, we pray that um, God would bless you through this message today. Um, if you could, just join me in prayer. But let's pray that God would speak to us through his word. Let's ask him that he would give us understanding that he would take these truths that we hear today and, and, um, and really uh, anything that's from him would really dig deep down into our hearts, pierce our hearts, and that we would uh, be able to take the truth that we learned today and be able to apply it to our lives as we go from here. But let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we, we come before you, God, and we do ask again that you would be with us right now, God, as, as your word is, is, is preached that you would speak through me, God, that Holy Spirit, you would give us understanding, that you'd uh, help us to be able to, to understand your truth, that we would be convicted of any sin in our life that is present there, and that we would be encouraged in ways that, that you desire for us to be encouraged, that we would be reminded of who you are and who we are in you. God, we ask those things in your name, Jesus. Amen. In Andrew Davis's book uh, titled The Power of Christian Contentment, he wrote, In this tragic world, we are surrounded by discontented people. Every minute of the day, it is possible to see evidence of this restless discontentment in the way people respond to circumstances. People show their discontent while driving because the traffic's too slow, or people, or perhaps the weather is too hot, too rainy, too humid. Or in their jobs, people aren't making enough money or receiving enough credit for the hard work they're putting in. Or they can't stand their co-workers. People feel deeply disappointed with their marriage or how their family or, or how their children are turning out. Their bodies are not beautiful enough. You know, admired in their discontent, people often buy things that they don't really need to improve their outlook on life. And what about us? You know, it's easy to, to see it all around us, Right? But sometimes we're blind to the discontentment in our own lives. You know, are there moments this week or maybe even today where we struggled with being discontent? You know, discontentment is an attitude or it's a disposition that we have when we're not satisfied with something within our current circumstances. And when we're not satisfied, then our discontentment can manifest itself in different ways in our lives. And so when we want, when, when whatever we find our satisfaction in is taken away or, or not given to us, then we might begin to complain, grumble, or respond in other sinful ways. Let's think about it. You know, how, how do we respond if a large chunk of money is taken out of your bank account because your car breaks down? Or maybe the stock market crashes? Or what if you don't get the recognition that you think that you deserve at your job? If, what if you don't get that promotion and someone else does? What about when the current circumstances regarding our health is not what we would want them to be? You know, students, how do you respond when your friend chooses to hang out with somebody else rather than hanging out with you? Or when your teacher gives you a C on a project that you put A-plus effort in? Or children, how do you respond when you're looking forward to that ice cream for dessert after you've eaten all those vegetables and, and, and all that other good stuff. 
and you find out that your, your dad ate all the ice cream in the freezer. You know, what about when your parents ask you to clean up your room and, and you just planned on doing this really fun thing at that moment, but they ask you to do that? You know, do you find yourself grumbling and complaining? You know, so then this likely could be a red flag that you're trying to find contentment or satisfaction in something or someone other than Christ. And when whatever we find our contentment or our satisfaction is in is, is taken away, where it's not what it used to be, then we can begin to struggle with being discontent. You know, some of these things sound kind of silly, right? But it, the reality is, is that discontentment is a form of pride that can invade every area of our lives, and it can disguise itself very well. And so what is the secret to living a life of Christian contentment? Well, I believe that Paul addresses that, that here in our passage today, and my hope is that as we look together at Philippians chapter 4, that we can walk away with the answer to that question. And so our main idea, and also the, the one main point for us today, is learn to live a life of Christian contentment. So learn to live a life of Christian contentment. And I just have three questions that I want us to answer together as we work through the text that I hope will help us better understand how to do this. And these are our three sub-points for us today. Is First, what is Christian contentment? So what is Christian contentment? Secondly, what is the secret to living with Christian contentment? What is the secret to living with Christian contentment? And then lastly, how do we learn contentment? Which will be our application. How do we learn contentment? And so if you have a Bible, then please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you're not already there, we'll be focusing on verses 10 through 13. And as you turn there, I just want to give you a brief context of the book of Philippians so that we can better understand where Paul is at in our passage today. You know, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter from prison to the church in Philippi, which in Acts 16, we learned that this was one of the first churches that he planted in Eastern Europe. And Philippi was a Roman colony that was full of retired Roman soldiers, and the community there it was pretty patriotic and, and nationalistic. You know, many worshipped the emperor as their god, and they gave him the title Lord and Savior. And so you can imagine Paul faced a lot of pushback when he started proclaiming that Christ is actually the true Lord and Savior. And when he left the church, he began and the church when he left and the church began to be established there, his fellow believers also began facing persecution. And so he wrote them in order to accomplish multiple things. He wanted to update the believers there about the return of Epaphroditus who they sent to Paul with a financial gift as he was in prison. He wanted to thank them for this gift and update them about his current circumstances, his imprisonment. You know, another purpose was that he wanted to encourage and instruct the church that as they were suffering from the opposition that they were facing from persecution, that he wanted to address some of the internal division that existed within the church there. And so Paul addresses a lot of these attitudes that lie behind this internal, internal unrest in chapter 2, which include you know, selfish ambition, rivalry, seeking a vain or empty glory for themselves. You know, he encouraged them to reject this and instead to have the same kind of mindset that Christ Jesus had, which was a mindset of humility. And if these kinds of, of sinful attitudes are left unchecked, then it will lead to, to mumbling and murmuring and complaining, which will bring division within the church and result in them not being united in a joyful partnership with one another as they seek to further the gospel in that community. And Paul, he will highlight in our passage today another important attitude that the church in Philippi and that we must live with. 
If we're going to live a Christian, a life of Christian contentment and be set apart from the rest of the world, no matter how our circumstances change. And so let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 together. Starting in verse 10, Paul wrote, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of, placing, of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so first, what is Christian contentment? You know, Paul begins in verse 10 by explaining to them how he rejoiced in the Lord because their concern for him has been revived. He goes out of his way to make sure that he is clear here and that they understand that he's not saying that they were not concerned for him before his imprisonment, but instead the Lord has provided an opportunity for them to rekindle this friendship that they have in Christ through his suffering. It has provided an opportunity for them to reconnect with Paul through sending a financial gift to him through Epaphroditus, which is why he wrote that they were concerned, but they just did not have the opportunity. And notice that in this passage, in the entire letter, Paul, he doesn't murmur, he doesn't grumble, he doesn't complain about his imprisonment and his difficult circumstances. He doesn't complain about any of those things. Instead, he, he's rejoicing here within this passage and throughout the letter. He rejoices even when he's faced with this Roman imprisonment, which during that time, they were just very brutal. You know, Davis, he, he writes again, there was no concern for prisoner comfort, no plan for meals or medical care, and no concern for a just and speedy trial. Paul's imprisonment went on for a long time. And Paul had to wait patiently for his freedom, even though he did nothing wrong. You know, this, this wasn't like our prison systems where all basic needs are provided. Paul was responsible for, for providing his own meals, clothing, and, and all of his other basic needs. And so Paul, he does have needs, which is why the church sent him a financial gift through Epaphroditus. But in verse 11, he writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need. He's not saying that he doesn't have any needs here. He needed money to be able to pay for his basic needs in order to survive. He wrote back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, your messenger, messenger and minister to my need. And so he acknowledges that he had a need and that the church in Philippi sent a financial gift to meet that need. But Paul here, he's emphasizing that his rejoicing isn't dependent on what he has or what he doesn't have because his contentment or his satisfaction is not dependent on those things you know, look at the second half of verse 11 and into verse 12 he wrote for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need and so Paul here, he's showing them, he's showing us what Christian contentment looks like in his own life. You know, the word used by Paul here that we've translated to mean content literally means self-sufficient, independent, satisfied, or to have enough in the Greek language. 
You know, during Paul's day, this term, it was used outside of the scriptures by Greek philosophers to describe one of the virtues that they held most highly. And John MacArthur describes it pretty well when he writes about how the term actually indicates a certain independence, a certain lack of necessity for aid or help. In fact, it was used to refer to a person who supported himself without anyone's aid. They believed that this concept of contentment was reached when you had come to the point of total indifference, when you were indifferent to everything. Then and only then would you be content. In other words, you sort of just thought yourself into an, an I-don't-care kind of attitude in life. Now that, is the con- that, 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 now, that is the contentment of indifference. That is the contentment that abolishes feeling and it abolishes emotion. Obviously, Paul's not teaching this here. And he would have stood firmly against this teaching during his day. Unlike the Greek philosophers, Paul taught about the importance of Christian community and how we provide for one another, how we help one another. And he did not believe that we should strive to, to live these kind of lives with, with zero emotion or an I don't a care kind of attitude or approach to life. And he did not believe that, he would, that, that, that we could be self-sufficient. And so what does he mean when he uses this word here in Greek? When Paul says that he has learned how to be self-sufficient, Paul takes this Greek philosophical teaching of his day and he flips it on its head by using the same word but meaning something very different. Again, MacArthur puts it best when he says, Paul is saying, I have learned to be satisfied. I have learned to be sufficient in myself and yet not in myself as myself, but in myself as indwelt by Christ. Paul does not find his satisfaction in material things, in other people, or in his circumstances. He finds his satisfaction in the one who dwells within him, Christ. And as a result, he can experience inward peace and delight in the Lord's will for his life, no matter what God allows or doesn't allow to come about in his life. And so what is Christian contentment? It's an inward peace that comes from being satisfied with Christ in whatever circumstances that he allows to come about in our lives. It is an inward peace that comes from being satisfied with Jesus. In whatever circumstances, good or bad, that he allows to come about in our lives. You know, this is why Paul wrote in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And understand that this does not mean that we do not bring our concerns to the Lord in prayer. That we do not seek to change our circumstances to make them better and seek wisdom from the Lord about the steps that we can take to do this. It doesn't mean that we do not seek the help of one another. We're not called to be like those Greek Stoic philosophers who approached life with an I don't care attitude, who were striving to be these emotionless kind of zombies as they walk through life. Well, what happens when we don't get what we want? Or something gets taken away from us? How do we respond when we are brought low, when we're faced with hunger and we're in need, when circumstances don't go our way? Or about when everything goes perfect? It's okay to to enjoy God's good blessings that he gives to us, but how do we respond when we abound? when we have plenty, when we have abundance. 
You know, the foundation to Christian contentment is satisfaction in Christ. If our satisfaction is found in the giver of all those good gifts, then no matter how our circumstances change, we will continue to experience that inner peace because it is dependent upon the one who is never changing, who is sovereign over every single circumstance in our lives, and who has our best good in mind. And so again, what is Christian contentment? It's an inward peace that comes from being satisfied with Jesus and in whatever circumstances that he allows to come about in our lives. But where do we get the ability to have this kind of satisfaction in Christ and to live with this kind of Christian contentment no matter what circumstances we're faced with? Paul wrote in the last part of verse 12 that he had learned the secret of facing all these kinds of circumstances while living with this kind of Christian contentment. And so our second sub-point is, what is the secret to living with Christian contentment? Paul wrote in verse 13, I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. Paul is able to find his satisfaction in Christ and live with this kind of contentment no matter what circumstances he's faced with because Christ gave him the strength to do this. This is way different than what many believed and taught during Paul's day. Like I mentioned before, self-sufficiency was a virtue that was held very high at the top of the list by, by many people during his day. And anyone who depended on others, that was actually seen as a sign of weakness. They believed that they had the power and the strength within themselves to be able to master their thoughts and emotions so that Anything that came their way, it would not affect them. That was, similar, that, that was a similar message to what we hear today. You know, it's just packaged a little bit differently, right? There's so many authors and, and motivational speakers who write books, post inspirational quotes on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, and they make a pretty decent living doing this, off of proclaiming a message to us that they have the secret to living a life of contentment that we have the power within us to be able to master our own thoughts and our, our emotions so that we can be satisfied and live a life of fulfillment and peace no matter what we're faced with. If, for example, a motivational speaker and writer by the name of uh, Arushi Tawari wrote, I deeply believe that self-love is fundamental to a fulfilled life. When we love ourselves, we become stronger, happier, and more peaceful. You know, Robert Morley wrote, To fall in love with yourself is the secret to happiness. You know, the problem is, is that we do not have that kind of power and strength. And God clearly communicates to us through his word that we are far from self-sufficiency. You know, Paul wrote elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. And Jesus said in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. We don't even have the ability to come to Christ unless he enables us to come to him. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we cannot come to him initially to find our satisfaction in him unless he first does a work within us. And we certainly cannot live a life of Christian contentment by our own power unless he enables us to do this. And so what is the secret to living with Christian contentment? It's being strengthened by Christ to find our satisfaction in Him no matter how our circumstances change. Being strengthened by Him. 
But our, our next question and our third subpoint is how do we learn contentment? This is kind of more so our application for us today from this passage. How do we learn contentment? You know, Paul mentions this twice in this passage. He wrote in verse 11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, Contentment is not found, it is learned. Contentment is not a quality that comes naturally, but a discipline to be acquired gradually. You know, this is hard, right? You know, an attitude of Christian contentment is not an easy thing to have when we're faced with just absolutely difficult circumstances, difficult suffering in our lives. It can be a lot more natural for us to to be discontent and to respond by grumbling and complaining. Well, I just want to give us some practical points of application that if we're are disciplined about practicing them by the strength that Christ gives us, that he will help us in our process of sanctification as we become more like Jesus to learn and mature in this area of our relationship with Christ. So the first point of our application today is, one, don't downplay your grumbling and complaining. So don't make light of or don't downplay your grumbling and complaining. And firstly, I just want to say, within this point, that, that not all complaining is necessarily evil, right off the bat. You know, not all complaining is necessarily evil. John Bloom writes, there's a faithful, believing way to complain and a faithless, unbelieving way to complain. Faithful complaining does not charge God with wrong. Rather, it's an honest, groaning expression of what it's like to experience the trouble, anguish, and grief of living in this fallen world. God does not mind this kind of complaining. In fact, he encourages it, and he teaches us how to do it in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 142, King David was faced with pretty difficult circumstances himself. His life was on the line as he's hiding in a cave while King Saul pursued him. He declared in, in Psalm 142, in the first two verses, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. You know, and there are tons of other psalms and other examples of this within the scriptures. There are so many psalms of lament that teach us about this, right? They model for us what it looks like to complain to God in a way that honors him and reaffirms the truth of who he is, even in our difficult circumstances. Again, we don't want to be like the philosophers of Paul's day and become like emotionless zombies, right? However, the scriptures often refer to sinful and faithless complaining as grumbling. You know, this is the type of complaining that's probably most likely most prevalent within our lives, is the sinful kind of complaining that doesn't acknowledge God's wisdom, it doesn't acknowledge His goodness and His sovereign, loving care within our lives. You know, I know that, that one of the first examples I think of when I think of sinful complaining and maybe you're thinking of it right now, is, is the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. You know, it says in Exodus 16, in verses 2 and 3, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out here into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You know, they forgot, obviously, to acknowledge God's wisdom, His goodness, and His sovereign loving care within their lives. 
that he had actually freed them from slavery to the Egyptians. And instead of, of finding their, their satisfaction in God, they found at that moment their satisfaction in being able to eat all the food that they wanted to while they were enslaved, which led to their grumbling. Now that's just one example of sinful complaining within the Scriptures. But we look at them and we're like, man, I can't believe they would do that. But isn't it easy for us to say that we affirm these truths? But when something difficult arises throughout our day, no matter how large, how small it might be, we can quickly fail to affirm what we believe about the Scriptures by how we live in those moments. So in light of this, a a helpful first step for us in learning how to live with Christian contentment is when sinful grumbling and complaining arises, that we don't just downplay it, ignore it, make little of it. It's easy to push it to the side and to tell ourselves that, you know, don't let this person, what this person did to me, ruin my day. You know, I just need to be more positive. I need to keep going. Or maybe, maybe you respond by, in your own mind, just justifying your own grumbling and complaining in some way, that you don't deserve what's happening to you and, and, and I should not have had this, this thing taken away from me. You know, in those moments, don't downplay it. You know, ask God to help you examine your own heart and to see whether your complaining is, is faithful or is it faithless. And if it is faithless, then don't stop there. You know, our grumbling and complaining should throw up red flags that cause us to stop and ask ourselves, well, what am I complaining about in this moment? And then, what am I trying to find my satisfaction in that has led to my sinful grumbling and complaining? And a good practice that you might find helpful, or you may not, is to carry a little notebook. I always see Joshua, he always has this little notebook in his pocket, which you've probably seen him pull it out, and he'll write something in it and put it back in. I bet he has it right now. He does, yeah. Take a little notebook like that, keep it in your pocket, put it in your purse. You know, so that way, whenever, whatever leads you during the day to grumble and complain, write that down, make a note of it, keep a journal of it. That way you can begin to see a pattern in your life, or if you're busy and you just don't have time to sit and meditate on what's going on within your own heart, then you can go back and revisit it later. Now write down what is causing you to grumble and complain, and then think through, am I finding my satisfaction in whatever I'm not getting in that moment? So one way we can learn contentment is by not downplaying our grumbling and complaining. But secondly, Look to Christ in all circumstances. So look to Christ in all circumstances. If you want to see an example of someone who takes the most sour lemons and turns it into the most glorious pitcher of lemonade that you've ever tasted, then look no further than Apostle Paul's letters, right? In Acts 9, after Paul's blinded on the road to Damascus, God commands Ananias to go to Paul because he is his chosen instrument to spread the gospel. And God also says he will show Paul how much he must suffer in his name. And from that point on, we can see in Acts, and especially in Paul's letters, how God provides so many opportunities for Paul to learn contentment through his suffering and through his difficult circumstances. If we just look at at Paul's letter to the Philippians alone, you think about his circumstances again. He's in a dingy, miserable Roman prison with every conceivable obstacle to his joy and his peace surrounding him when he's writing this letter. But this is such a joyful letter, right? 
So much so that he uses the word joy and rejoice 16 times in this short letter. You know, one of the ways that Paul learned Christian contentment throughout his life was by intentionally looking to Christ in all circumstances. And as he learned to continually practice this throughout his life, it resulted in him learning contentment in Christ, which is why he could rejoice and have joy and peace rather than grumbling and complaining. That was why he could be so joyful when writing this letter. I mean, just listen to some of the examples of how he does this within the book of Philippians. You know, rather than complaining about why he should not be in prison, he wrote in Philippians 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know, he reminds himself and he reminds those he's writing to about how God is using his imprisonment for good. And rather than grumbling about how everyone has forgotten about him in prison and how he could have been, he could be, uh, have been used in greater ways if he weren't in prison, he writes in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he looks to Christ by acknowledging that the church is praying for him and that the Holy Spirit is working on his behalf. And he looks forward with a hope that Christ will be glorified through his suffering. And rather than viewing his sufferings as the Lord not loving him, he looks to Christ by viewing his suffering as a gift from God in Philippians, a means that he can share in the sufferings of Christ and something that will lead to glorious reward. If Paul learned how to look and be reminded of who Christ is and who he was in Christ, and how to look forward to what he has promised in Christ. And he didn't only practice looking to Christ when his circumstances were difficult, but he also did this when he was abounding and had an abundance. He knew that Christ was enough, whether he was abounding or whether he was brought low. He didn't forget who had blessed him in the moments that he's blessed. And he didn't forget who God was in those moments when he was faced with difficult circumstances. You know, do we regularly remind ourselves of God's sovereign wisdom and his goodness and his loving care within our lives as we read the scriptures and as we speak to one another? When we're struggling with discontentment because of our jobs or our health or our relationships and because things, there are things that we don't have that we want, or things that we had that, we, that were taken away? Is this something that we recognize and put off while also remembering who He is and who we are in Him? Or when we have more than what we have ever expected to have, are we still looking to Christ and remembering that as James wrote in James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift, gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change? You know, if our satisfaction is placed in all of those things, then when they are taken away, our peace and our joy will be, t will be taken away as well. And we will struggle with discontentment. But if our satisfaction is found in Christ, then the whole world could be taken away, but our inner peace and joy, it will remain. You know, this is why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, for to, me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, if he were to die, 
then he wouldn't be able to take anything from this world with him, but it would still be gain because he would be in the presence of the one who he found his satisfaction in. And he would experience that satisfaction to the fullest in the presence of the one that he found his satisfaction in. And so we learn contentment by looking to Christ in all our circumstances. But thirdly, be strengthened by Christ. Be strengthened by Christ. You know, Philippians 4.13 and I think actually Miss Evelyn had mentioned this a few weeks ago after during potluck. It's, it's one of the most misused quotes or verses in the Bible, misquoted verses in the Bible. You know, many people use this to say that you know, I can accomplish anything that I set my mind to by the strength that Christ gives me. But that's actually not what Christ is saying or what, what Paul is saying here. As we've already found out within the context of our passage that Paul is saying that he can live with this Christian contentment in all circumstances because Christ is where he finds his satisfaction and also because Christ is the one who gives him the power to do this. And so I just want to briefly say that we cannot be satisfied with Christ and learn contentment unless Christ does that work within us and enables us to do this. We need his strength to learn this. So along with us doing the difficult and hard work of not downplaying our grumbling and complaining and intentionally looking to Christ in all circumstances, we need to seek Him in prayer for the strength to be able to accomplish this as well. You know, this is like what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 13. You know, God works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We work hard at this difficult task, but He's strengthening us as we work hard. And so be strengthened by Christ. But lastly, do you find satisfaction in Christ at all? Do you find satisfaction in Christ at all? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you find any satisfaction in Him, and do you desire to know Him more? Or have you been trying to find your satisfaction in one thing after another? If so, then, then I would encourage you to quit trying to find your satisfaction in fulfillment in everything that the world has to offer, and turn from those things and, and receive the one that you can find your satisfaction in, Jesus. And if God is doing that work within your heart, then turn to him. Turn from your sin and receive Jesus, the one who saves. You pray and ask him to save you, or, or please talk to somebody, hear about the gospel. You know, we've got a few elders here. We've got people who would love to talk to you about the gospel. But in conclusion... I encourage us all that we would continue to find strength in Christ to persevere in learning contentment in Him together. That we would continue turning our eyes upon Jesus, looking full in His wonderful face. And as we do that, that the things of earth would go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we come before You. God, we ask that we ask for your strength, God, to be able to live lives of Christian contentment, to be able to learn how to do this. God, help us to be able to, to, to fight the sinful complaining that exists within our lives by your strength, to not just push our grumbling and complaining aside, but to identify it, God. Help us to see it, reveal that within our own hearts. God, I pray that you'd also help us to, to look to you in, in all circumstances. God, to remember that, that God, you are all-powerful, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are all-wise, and that you care for us. You love us. 
that you're working out all things for our good and for your glory. God, we pray that you'd also help us to always seek your strength to be able to do all of this. Lord, we ask these things in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.